Each spring, Pensacola Christian College hosts the Enrichment Retreat designed for pastors, ministry leaders, and church staff to enjoy a time of rest and to be refreshed by the Word of God. Today's message was from a past Enrichment Retreat keynote speaker. Visit enrichmentretreat.com for details or to learn more about the upcoming retreat. My name is Jeff, and I'm a Bibleholic. My Bible reading habits started out innocently enough years ago when I read my Bible socially, usually when I was out with my friends on Sunday morning. At first, I think it was only reading a little bit so that I would feel like I would fit in with the crowd, but of course it became habitual and I got a taste for it. I could see others around me and didn't seem to need their Bible, but... They could put it aside on a whim, but I soon realized that I could not stop myself. I needed that Bible more and more, and now I read it every day, and usually alone. On my good days, I wake up and reach for my Bible first thing. I can't seem to really get started and function without a couple of verses. On the bad days, I go back to the Bible over and over I developed a three or four chapter a day habit, and with that the case, I probably will go through the whole Bible in a year, but even as I write that, it doesn't seem like it's quite enough. I have a Bible that's my favorite. I don't even hide it anymore. I just lay it out there on the table in front of everybody, (laughs) but I have a couple of secret stashes just in case, like a (laughs) Psalms in the New Testament hidden in the glove compartment just in case it's needed. I've heard that the true mark of addiction is when you see your personality change because of the stuff, and I know that's happening to me. seems like the more I read my Bible, the different I get. People who knew me years ago hardly recognize me now. I seem to not have an interest in the things I used to have an interest in years ago. Of course, no one wants to be around me anymore because they have found that this Bible addiction has changed the way that I function in life. But I have found other people who are just as addicted to their Bible as I, and I tend to hang out with them. I guess we enable each other (laughs) because no one's talking about quitting. And as long as I'm being quite honest here, I better admit that I have encouraged a lot of other people to read their Bibles themselves too, even children. (laughs) Yes, I've given Bibles to my own children while they were still too young to really choose for themselves and not watered-down versions either. I mean the real deal, the KJV and all of that. (laughs) So this is how I'm living today, a full-blown Bibleholic. I know the trend today is to say that everybody's a victim, but I have to admit that I chose this, knowing full well I was ultimately getting into something. And I'm not any interested in any worldly inventions that might cure me of this. On the day I go to heaven, I want everyone to say, we knew this would happen. He just wouldn't put that Bible alone. <laughs> so let's take a hit this morning, shall we? <laughs> go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse number 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, 
but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. All was bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not on the things which are seen, but on the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for this selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us first so that we could love you. We're reminded of that great Welsh revival song that we sung just a few moments ago, Herein is Love. Thank you, Father, for giving us the security of being in you. Thank you, Lord, for your word that you've given to us that we can look at today. And Lord, my desire is that I would accurately represent your word and that you would do in us today exactly what your spirit desires to do. Give me, Lord, power to preach effectively, and I pray, Lord, you'll help me to preach heart to heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. C.S. Lewis said this, and I'm quoting, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were precisely those who thought most about the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they become ineffective in this, end quote. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, you and I have to live every single day with eternal values in view. And if we don't live with those eternal values in view, I think that many times we can easily become discouraged, despondent, yea, even suicidal in missionary work, in mission, in our calling. It's interesting that Paul puts a great tension on this when he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And right there you see the reward and the rigor of ministry. We have this treasure, that's the reward, in earthen vessels. (laughs) That's the rigor. Not a fancy outline this morning, two points. First of all, think with me about the rigors of ministry. 
the rigors of ministry. Now, you remember the first day, probably, that you arrived on your ministry station. I remember the first day that I became a pastor. I was sitting in my parents' uh, kitchen room, and the pulpit committee was going to be voting on me in Pennsylvania that afternoon. And I sat in Ohio by the phone, feverishly waiting for their call. And I remember the pulpit committee chairman telling me, if I, when you pick up the phone, if the first words you hear are, Pastor... I'm sitting in your chair. You'll know you got it. And I remember as the fireworks of heaven went off in my soul and he picked that, I picked that phone up and those were the very words that I heard. Pastor, I'm sitting in your chair. I pulled up two weeks later on that campus and they'd already put my name on the sign. Jeff Amsball, pastor, P-A-S-T-E-R, pastor. And all I could think of in that very moment were the rewards and the compensations and the dignity of ministry. And you know, we often are there that we hang <laughs> our dreams here, we hang reality here, and then we hang ourselves over here. <laughs> ministry can be very harsh. It is something that is filled with landmines that we never dreamed at the beginning that we would have to encounter. I had a pastor friend tell me several years ago that he wished all his people did was just drink, smoke, and swear. (laughs) You know, those used to be big problems years ago. And now we wish that's all they did. Whatever treasure we have in ministry, we possess it, the Bible says, in jars of clay, in earthen vessels. A jar of clay was purchased in the marketplace for just a few copper pieces. A jar of clay was not a decorative vase that was set on the mantle for people to admire. Oh, no. Nor was it a sturdy vessel like a pot or a pan that was used repeatedly and had that durability to it. Oh, no, 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 no. You understand that a jar of clay was a cheap, disposable, everyday container. Think about that. We're disposable. You know that every single one of us is an interim pastor? Every one of us. I don't care if you've been at your church for six months or 60 years, you're an interim pastor. We're disposable. Matter of fact, some people in church remind us that we're disposable. (laughs) I was here before you came, and I'll be here when you leave. (laughs) One commentator said that this is the equivalent to what in our culture would be a plastic bag. The point is, is that there's a frailty to human ministry. But not only is there a frailty to it, Paul goes even further in this passage and he talks about a finality to it. He says in verses 10 through 12 that we bear in our bodies the dying of the Lord Jesus. Good night. Verse 11, we are delivered unto the death of Jesus Verse 12, death works in us. This is his resume. These are his bullet points. 
Ministry is difficult. It has frailty to it, but it's beyond that. It has finality to it. Ministry, he's essentially saying, is impossible. You know, it's only when we grasp that that we can do it right. I called up a friend a little while back. I was feeling under the gun, and I knew that he had been under the gun. So I called him for advice on how to deal with something when you're under the gun. And I said, how did you know? I mean, he was really, he'd been treated worse than just about any pastor I've ever known. And I asked him, I said, how did you know when it was time to be done? Here's what he said to me. Listen to his words. He said, Jeff, I never thought about taking suicide. He said, I I didn't have enough guts to take my own life. But he said, when I went to bed at night and prayed that I wouldn't wake up the next morning, I knew it was time. I don't know about you, but there are times when ministry can really get less glamorous than we thought it was. And we have the rigor of ministry. Paul gives us four things to think about in this regard. Number one, he says, we are pressed. Verse 8, look at it. He says, we are troubled on every side. That word troubled is the Greek word philipsis. It refers to pressure. When they would take a grape and they would squash it to get the juice out of it, that was called philipsis. When millstones ground against each other to separate wheat from chaff, the pressure applied to that grain was called philipsis. There was actually a form of uh, execution where they would place a boulder on top of somebody and that boulder would gradually grind him to death. That form of execution was called philipsis. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever feel pressure? There are demands, aren't there, in ministry? We have demands from our congregation. We have demands from our colleagues. There are demands from the community community at large. There are financial pressures. There are organizational pressures. There are family pressures. There's all kinds of pressures that you and I feel that are constantly grinding against us in life. We're expected to be at different places at different times. If you've got a Christian school, just don't go to bed. (laughs) Mary had a little lamb, and it could have been a sheep. But it went to my church and it never got any sleep. (laughs) You understand that people expect us to be virtually everywhere. You used to have an old skit at the wilds, we've been everywhere, man, we've been everywhere. And you can sing that. We have been everywhere, every time. And then you have two things that are happening at the same time. And somebody's going to be mad because you chose one over the other. What am I saying? I'm saying we are pressed. Remember the old line from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? When they come here, they stretch you and stretch you and stretch you. And the guy says, when I came here, I was a midget. You know? <laughs> pressed. Now are we pressed, we're perplexed. He says in verse 8, we are not only troubled, but we are perplexed. This word perplexed carries with it the idea of not knowing which road to take. I admire people who are decisive. I married a wife, my dear wife, Karen. She is very decisive. I am not decisive. Now, if I know the Bible spoken, I'm inflexible. 
But the problem is in ministry, we have to make many decisions on things where the Bible doesn't really speak concerning it. What color carpet, who should be over the nursery, these type of things. And in those type of issues, I can have a board meeting with myself. I don't need deacons. I feel like that cowboy who got on his horse and rode off in all directions, you know. And we often preach that God's will comes with unparalleled clarity. Well, I'm happy if that's true for you, but it ain't been true for me. History suggests to us that, at least in my life, that's simply not true. There are certain times in ministry where we're just as confused as the people we're leading. I would gladly read you down the road if I knew what road to lead you down. (laughs) One of the biggest lines I've used in ministry all these years of 33 years of pastoring is, I don't know, Shaggy. (laughs) I just don't know. I am completely at a loss sometimes as I am perplexed. Pastor, you look confused. There's a reason for that. I'm confused. (laughs) We are perplexed. We are persecuted. Verse 9. Not only are we pressed and perplexed, but we're persecuted. Now, not all ministry leads to the physical threat of life and limb. Though, in some places of the world, that's true today. There are men, for example, in the state of Orissa in India who are preaching today in danger of their own lives. Their houses will be burned by militant Hindus or militant Islamic extremists. There are people who will be preaching today in life and limb. But the thrust of this is largely the idea of being targeted. I'm a big fan of Louis L'Amour. I think Louis L'Amour has written... 100 novels, 250 short stories. I think there are only six or seven that I haven't read. One thing I've learned from Louis L'Amour, the higher you get up the mesa, the more likely you are to get shot. You understand that the higher you go in leadership, the more exposed you are. And you have a target. You can't escape it. If you aspire to leadership, there will be a target on your back. When attendance is not what we think it is. We Baptists, we judge everything by nickels, noise, and numbers. And when the nickels aren't there and the noise isn't there and the numbers aren't there, when that's not true and people are looking for some reason, and my goodness, okay, Dr. Pope asked me to do it, everything rises and falls on leadership. I heard from time I was a little kid, Dr. Robertson come and he'd say, everything rises and falls on leadership. That's a bust, because I am the leader. You ever feel like um, when Gomer and Barney are on the top of the courthouse, and, uh, and there's like trouble down below, and Gomer says, we ought to call the law. And Barney says, we are the law. He says, Shazam, we are. You ever wish that somebody else was the law? Because you're in the crosshairs. You are the target. Opposition is part of your job description. Ouch. We are persecuted. And then finally, he says we are punched. He says we are cast down. That word cast down carries with it the idea of being punched to the ground. Now, Paul, this... 
literally happened to him in Lystra. This literally happened to him. <laughs> I've known a few pastors where it happened to. I remember one time a pastor friend of mine and his, um, his chairman of boards were at odds, and he and his wife actually got into a physical fight in the parking lot after church, a physical fight, and the deacon's wife bit the pastor's wife. Bitter. Can you imagine going to the emergency room for this to get your tetanus shot? Or rabies shot, who knows? I see. Uh, what, what kind of bite is this? Oh, it's a human bite, I see. And where did you receive this human bite? Oh, at church, okay. And, and who administered it? Oh, the deacon's wife. And who are you? You're the pastor. Can you imagine? There are times when we feel knocked down with our backs on the ground. We feel that the ref is over us and he's counting. One, two, three. And we don't know if we're going to be able to get up before ten occurs. And sometimes you just feel sucker punched too. He didn't expect it. We can all raise our hands to testimony that the people that we invested the most in turned out to be the people that would hurt us the deepest. It's always amazing to be a testimony type. People that you haven't even talked to that you hardly remember the last time you talked to them say, Pastor, your ministry has meant so much to me. You're like, why? (laughs) And then there are other people. You sat there when their kid was going through surgery. You've been there at every turn. And at the business meeting, they just got demon-possessed. What caused that? You understand that ministry is rigorous. Which brings us to our second point, which we have to quickly get to, which is the resources for ministry. I love the fact that there are four wonderful conjunctions in verses 8 and 9. Now, I was a big fan of Schoolhouse Rock when I was a little kid. Remember that? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Okay, functions are very important when it comes to conjunctions. We are pressured, but we're not distressed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not deserted. We are punched, but we are not destroyed. Now, you understand that this would not be true if you didn't, if you analyze this merely on the surface of things. If you merely analyze this on the surface, there's no way we could use these conjunctions. On the surface, we are merely jars of clay. But underneath the surface, he says, there is this possessed treasure. And that makes all the difference in the world. And may I say to you, that's why in ministry you have to walk by faith and not by sight. You can't function according to what you perceive. You have to function according to what you know. And this treasure is only discernible by faith, not by sight. Notice the quotation found in verse 13. I believed and thus speak. That's important. Do something with that in your Bible. I believed and thus speak. You understand that we wouldn't get up on Sunday morning and say anything if we judge things by sight. We're scared to death of those people. But yet the Bible says that because we believe, because we know, because we agree with God about certain things, we can open our mouth and say something. The answer to all of this only comes to the one who operates by faith rather than by sight. 
for the, for, the explan- for the explanation of ministry, if it's by sight, we would have quit years ago and sold insurance. Why is it that people that you graduated with are most likely to succeed and were voted Mr. Temple or Mr. Eagle or whatever they have around here? Why is it those people that you considered that were going to go set the world on fire now are, you know, doing whatever? And out of ministry. Because they judged things by sight. They only saw the jar of clay. They didn't see the treasure inside. What happens to make ministry work is the operation of God. It is the treasure that's in the earthen vessel. Let me suggest to you several things. First of all, the presence of Jesus. Look at verse 14. I love this. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Now notice this. Jesus has the power to raise himself out of his own casket. This is cool. You understand that in the Old Testament, when God wanted to flex his muscle, God would refer to the Exodus. God would say, don't you remember that I, by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, delivered you makeshift slaves from the bondage of slavery? That was God's pinnacle display of power in the Old Testament. God's pinnacle display of power in the New Testament is the resurrection, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You understand that if you can stand up out of your own casket under the auspices of your own power, you don't have to do anything for an encore. I mean, if you can raise yourself from the dead, that is so cool. And this same Jesus who is able to do that is the same Jesus who lives inside of you. And he's able to raise you up so that you can go at it again. You can get up tomorrow morning. You can go at it again. When you feel like you want to suck your thumb and eat bonbons and watch soap operas the next day, and someday there's nothing inside of you that says, why should I? You know what's going to happen. The same Jesus who raised himself from the dead says, let's get up and go at it. What do you say? You understand that Christian ministry is not predominantly our ministry for Christ. It is rather Christ's ministry through us. Without him, we can do nothing. We heard it so eloquently last night. Ministry is effective because we are not in it alone. Jesus does not merely go with us. Jesus goes in us. If that don't light your fire, your wood's wet. You got treasure in your jar of clay. The presence of Jesus. Now I think with me about the presence of Jesus, but think with me about the power of the Spirit. Look down at chapter 5, verse 5. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing as God, who hath also given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. A second member of the Godhead in chapter 5, verse 5 is mentioned. Not only Jesus, but the Spirit. The Spirit has been given to us. Once again, the idea, it carries with it the idea of impartation. The down payment, the earnest money. If you bought a house, you know you got to put down earnest money. That's the down payment of all that's going to come. Do you understand that the Spirit who lives inside of you is only the down payment of all that's coming? The future must have something good in it then. Because, I mean... I mean, I, I hope 
you've experienced this, but have you ever just been driving down the car, just you in the car, and God's presence with you was just so strong in that, and you were just overcome with worship with you and God alone, that you're sitting there bawling like a baby in your own car, and people are like, what's the matter with him as they pull up? If you ever known the presence of God and the fullness of God and just being overwhelmed with the majesty that God is with you, in you, around you, that thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. And to know that God, in all of his effulgence, sent his very spirit to live inside of you. He walks with me and talks with me and tells me I am his own. And that's just the down payment of all that's coming. Reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated then, haven't they? You see, I not only have the presence of Jesus, but I have the power of God's spirit operative in my life. Now, the thrust of this, we've sandwiched this with the presence of Jesus and the power of the spirit. But between those two verses is this third point, which is the prospect of glory. And in this particular passage, this carries a tremendous amount of weight to the Apostle Paul. He spends a lot of time talking about it, so obviously this is not a trivial matter to him. In chapter 4, verse 14, the fact that Christ was raised means that we'll be raised. Chapter 5, verse 10, he talks about us appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. All of our endeavors are moving forward to this coming day where we're going to meet with God. Everything about that day will be better than the present one I'm currently experiencing. Notice how the contrast is. That, this day is light, that day is weighty. This day is troublesome, that day is glorious. This day is momentary, that day is eternal. This day is seen. That day is unseen. This day is a tent existence. That day is a building existence. Now, tents are vulnerable to storms, are they not? (laughs) But we're moving to a hurricane-proof place. I grew up in Ohio. There were tornadoes that would frequently come through Ohio when I was a kid. And me and my cousin, Kevin, were one day roughing it in the backyard, camping out in a tent. And one of those tornado winds came whipping through Ohio, and the one end of that tent lifted up, and the wind was just beating it like nobody's business. And my mother was watching all of this happen from the window, and she woke my father up, and she said, Art, you better go out and get him. And my dad came out into the backyard, and he reached into that tent, and he pulled me out of it, And he took me into the house. I was removed from the tent to the building. Some days we feel like these tents have taken all they can take. But you understand, this is only the temporary structure. One day God's going to say, that's enough. And God's going to reach in and pull us out of this tent and take us home. What a day that will be. Well, by Jesus, I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. And when he takes me by the hand and leads me through that promised land, what a day. What a glorious day that will be. 
When I was a kid, I used to make fun of the song, It Will Be Worth It All When We See Jesus. I used to get, that's such a thumb-sucking song. Oftentimes times the days seem long, our trials hard. After 33 years of mercy, that's become my life song, okay? <laughs> I don't make fun of that no more. And I'm glad there are, you know, I've been to all those Charlie Tremendous Jones things where you never have a bad day. I got news for you. I have my share of bad days. I have them. But you know what? This day, I cannot evaluate trial on the day that it happens. This day is not the final day, ladies and gentlemen. There's a day, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. So in chapter 4, verse 7, we see that ministry is only effective through him. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Ministry is primarily our identity with him, chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And ministry success is the advancement of him, chapter 4, verse 12, and chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. It is through him, it is with him, it is to him that all of this occurs. And to the degree, and I'm not saying this is an easy thing, but when we feel like our jar is about ready to break and we don't know if we can take any more. If I could just leave you with this thought that underneath that fragile life that you're living here on this earth, there is a treasure beneath this. Jesus lives in you. God's power is there to help you cope and to give you another day. And it is, as we heard last night, it is God's will to predestinate you to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And this is one of the reasons I am a strong advocate in eternal security because Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that there has never been any person that God has justified that he is not also glorified. So if there are no exceptions to the justification equaling ultimate glorification, then we're going to make it. We're going to make it. I'll conclude with this. When I was a little kid, you know, this will really date me, but there used to be an old sitcom called The Mary Tyler Moore Show. Remember that? Who can turn the world on with her smile? The end of that song, she'd throw her hat up in the middle of the intersection. You're going to make it after all. I got news for you. Most of the time when I threw my hat up, I was throwing it in. I was cashing in my chips. Let me tell you something. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. Even though I understand how fragile the jar is. But you got treasure in the earthen vessel. And the presence of Jesus and the power of the Spirit and the prospect of glory all says we got the resources. We got the resources to make it. One final thought. I think I said that once before, but this really is the final thought. (laughs) When I was writing my dissertation, there was this one aspect of it, and I could not find a great book on this found a couple of sort of good resources, but not the one that I was really looking for. So we just did it, we went through it, and everything turned out okay. 
After I turned in the final copy of the dissertation, I found the book I was looking for like a week after. And I remember sitting there for the oral defense, and I was, I was sitting there. They asked this question at the end, if you could have done one thing different, what would you have done? And I said, well, I wish I'd have found that book a month earlier. And they all started laughing in the room. And I said, what's there? I said, we've all been there. You understand, for the Christian living, no elusive resources exist. You have all the resources that you need to be effective through God's power. Sure, the clay jar is cracked. We get it. It's fragile. It can bust at any moment. But never forget, there's a treasure inside. You've been listening to a message from the Pensacola Christian College Enrichment Retreat. You're welcome to pass this message along to others, but we ask that you do not charge for it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. If you're a pastor or ministry leader, Join us for the next Enrichment Retreat and experience a time of physical rest and spiritual refreshment. To learn more, visit EnrichmentRetreat.com.